morning we just stop in this moment and we we just let our hearts resonate with that last verse. Why should we gain from your reward? You're the one who did the thing. You obeyed God perfectly and yet we benefit from your perfect righteousness and that is just an incredible reality that we just want to be cognizant of this morning. We are the beneficiaries of your graciousness and your holiness. We thank you for your goodness and grace to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sound like, if I sound different this morning, it's because I've got a sinus infection and uh, it's like I want to be Barry White when I have a sinus cold and Hey, talk down here all the time, you know. Kind of, kind of cool, but um, yeah. So we're in Galatians this morning, and the end of chapter one, rolling over into chapter two. I was reading a story this week. Sunday school teacher, you know, Sunday school, that thing that churches used to do. The Sunday school teacher was endeavoring to impress upon a classroom full of young boys the importance of living out the Christian life. And he asked the question, why do people call me a Christian? And there was this awkward pause and one brave little boy said, maybe it's because they don't know you. Well, he, the, the, what makes it funny is that the kid was simply saying that the person didn't know the man's name, but what comes across is this damning indictment that <laughs> they, don't, they would call you a Christian because they don't know you, right? They don't see your life, and, and, and it's just, oh, yeah, so-and-so, he's a Christian, right? If people, the people in your life know you by that name, do they know you by the name Jesus, Do they know you? If I asked, uh, would they say affirmatively, yes, so-and-so is a follower of Jesus? Or is your testimony one of being a closeted Christian? If If you suddenly passed away in your sleep this week and I did the memorial service, would your friends and family be aghast at me talking about you being a disciple of Jesus Christ, one saved by the blood of the Lamb? Would they be would they be confused by that? In this series that we're doing, Pure Gospel, Study Through Galatians, we've already clearly seen, and we're going to see again and again, that the gospel is this thing that we have to proclaim and live. It's not, one, it's not enough to have one or the other. We have to have both, because our deeds verify our words, and our words clarify our deeds. In other words, the, the way that we live our lives uh, for Jesus validates the gospel message when we speak it. And then the gospel message when we proclaim it gives context to the way that we live our lives. And so uh, that message, that pure gospel has to be proclaimed to be effective. Uh, another story I read this week that, that really drives this idea home was uh, a book, an excerpt from a book called The No Guilt Guide for Witnessing. I love the title of that book because so many preachers inadvertently guilt people into that. But uh, this story of a man named John Currier in 1949 was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. And later he was transferred out of the prison into this parole system, but he had to work on a, on a farm. It was, a, it was one of those labor uh, things in Tennessee. And so it, all, you, all the way up to 1968, he's just working there on the farm and... Um, And in 1968, his sentence was terminated by the state. And this letter was sent with the good news that his sentence was completed, done, over, 
But John never saw the letter and never got to the farm. He was never told about it. And so he kept on working on the farm. Even after the farmer died, he, he kept on working and just going on about what he thought was, was what he was supposed to do. And finally, the state parole officer uh, learned about this situation, found him, and told him that he was actually a free man and had been for some time. And the, the writer of the story asked the question in the, in the book. He said, would it matter to you if someone sent you an important message, the most important message of your life? And year after year, that urgent message was never delivered to you. We who have heard the good news and experienced freedom in Jesus Christ are responsible to proclaim that good news to other people. They're still enslaved to sin, just like John Currier was still on that farm serving his sentence. And the question is, I've been wrestling with this all week. Am I doing all that I can to make sure that people are getting the message of the gospel? I'm pressing the urgency of this reality on you. Normally I wait till the end of the sermon to really press, you know, but I'm going hard like from the beginning here because I feel a deep sense of conviction that we have very little time left here. And, and I want us to feel the full weight of the responsibility that we have as not just image bearers of God, but as message bearers of the gospel. We've been given a tremendous opportunity. So just by way of review here in Galatians, the gospel has to be pure or it's not the gospel. That's the opening five verses here. And then we talked last week about the pure gospel uh, leads to and shapes pure motives in us. You'll either live for the approval of man or you'll live for the approval of God, but you cannot do both. You will do one or the other. And that pure gospel then changes us from the inside out. The rebellious sinners that we once were become children of God who are justified, who are being sanctified, who will be glorified in his presence one day. And so what we say about this thing called testimony, what we say is that the objective truth of the gospel changes the objective reality of our lives. It changes us, fundamentally rearranges who we are as people. It doesn't override our personalities, but all the things that were ungodly about our lives and our personalities before begin to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we're going to look this morning at the text, and this is really uh, Paul's testimony here in Galatians 1, and we're starting in verse 12, and we're going to go right into chapter 2, verse 10. So read along with me if you have your paper Bible, if you have your mobile device, uh, version events, Emmaus Road, and then you'll find my sermon notes. So Galatians 1, starting in verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, Paul says, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning the gospel, right? For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. 
They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the the poor, which was the very thing I was eager to do. So let's go back. I'm gonna take this passage apart a little at a time. Please don't anybody tell Howard Schultz I have a straw in his Starbucks cup. Galatians 1, 12. For I did not receive it, the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying he had an, a personal encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Receiving the gospel directly from Jesus himself qualified Paul as an apostle. Remember, we talked about apostolos is a person who is sent with a message they're sent with a message. And, and, and you couldn't and you can't be appointed to the office of apostle by any other man. You can't. Even, even another apostle. You can't be appointed as an apostle. It has to be directly from Jesus Christ, which is why we don't have apostles today. We had some. And when the church was born, they gave oversight. They were the authority. And then we got the finality of God's word given to us in his revelation. And now that's our authority. So Paul's testimony becomes crucial justification for his ministry as an apostle. He's saying, I received the gospel and my call from Jesus directly, personally, in person, right? Look at 13. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I was persecuting the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age uh, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So I, I just would say zeal, maybe it's something we need more of as Christians. Zeal is not an, an inherently bad thing. But zeal is easily misplaced and easily misdirected. You can have zeal and apply it in a way that's really damaging, right? He says, for you have heard of my testimony, Paul says. It seems that everyone had heard about Paul and how he had come to the Lord. And Paul's story was very familiar to Christians in general, especially those that he had personally ministered to. You can just know that if Paul was among a group of people for a while, he'd been preaching the gospel, he's going to share his testimony of what God God had done in his life and how he had changed him. 
his credentials as a zealous Jew who persecuted Christians are without a, any doubt. We know Acts chapter 8 and 9 describe Paul's zealous persecution of the church. And here's the thing. He was not looking for some other truth in the midst of that. He wasn't on a search for another way to get to God. Paul was hell-bent on doing what he thought was pleasing to God. He wasn't seeking a new path to God. And this is a large part of what authenticates his testimony because he's not going looking for Christians going, I, I wonder if what they're doing is really the right way. I wonder if there's another way, if God's opened up an, uh, this, uh, this other path. Well, he's like, I'm gonna kill these people because they're blaspheming God. And so when he gets converted, it's a big deal. He wasn't looking for that. He's determined to stamp this out. Look at verse 15, 16, and 17. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. I don't know if you noticed the change in the language here in this section, but before Paul was a Christian, look at the emphasis in what he's saying. It's on what he had done. He says, I persecuted. I advanced Judaism. I was more exceedingly zealous. It's very me-focused, right? But then once Paul followed Jesus, look at the change and the shift in what he says. God who separated me. God who called me. God who revealed his son in me. I love that. I love, this is an immediate 180 degree shift for him. And this call to preach to the Gentiles shows God's got a tremendous sense of humor. He selected this man before he was born for the job of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. This is the man who grew up hating Gentiles, probably believing, like most of the Jews of his time did, maybe, maybe not all, but most of them, that the only reason God made the Gentile was to, Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell. Like that was, that was the passionate belief of many Jews. And so this is the world Paul grew up in, and now he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And you just got to laugh about that. God, what are you doing? That's just crazy. Why would you pick that dude? And I just believe God's got a tremendous sense of humor. I love it. I love it. Verse 15, really quickly, is not to be taken as proof that God decides which individuals will or not believe in Jesus, or that God effectually saves those he has pre-chosen. The word election in scripture just means a choice and God makes many choices and he has the right to do that. And this particular election is an election to service and I would encourage you to go back and listen. If that's something you get hung up on in the text sometimes, uh, go back and listen to our sermon series on the parables of Jesus and specifically the parable of the wedding feast in order to understand this one more clearly. But I'm not gonna delve into that too deeply this morning. Let's, let's go on, verse 18 on. Uh, Paul goes on, he says, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. I remained with him for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And when I'm writing to you before God, I don't lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. 
So just get this, like the, the big deal here is that Paul is not commanded to appear before the apostles for some kind of examination. They didn't dial him up and be like, you need to come over here and we need to make sure that you're, you're doing the right thing. That wasn't what happened. All right, Paul's not commanded to come to Jerusalem to give an account to Peter or the other apostles. He's come of his own accord and... <clears throat> Even the language here about his motive in coming to Jerusalem is kind of the same, same language in the Greek that you might use if you were a tourist going to visit a place. He's just going for a visit, right? And it's a friendly visit. And so then you roll over into chapter two and uh, let's take some of that. Uh, it says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, and set before them, excuse me, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So we've got a little bit of controversy here. Um, Paul has two visits to Jerusalem over 14 years, which confirms to us that Paul did not sit at the feet of the other disciples or apostles to learn the gospel. He did not. When he did go, he did not go because any man called him to go to Jerusalem. It was because God told him to go there, okay? And at this time, there was a contention rising over the place of the Gentiles in the church because to this point, God's covenant, his old covenant, had been exclusively with the nation of Israel, the Jews, right? And we see uh, God using Peter in Acts chapter 10 to welcome the Gentiles into the church. Peter's a major part of that. But some Christians from a Jewish background were saying that Gentiles could only be saved if they made themselves Jews first and brought themselves under the law of Moses. That's what this is about. Okay, You cannot be a Christian, you can't be saved unless you become a Jew first and come under the law of Moses and then you can yeah, have faith in Jesus and, and be saved. They thought salvation in Jesus was only for the Jewish people and so Gentiles had to become Jews before they could become Christians. And so knowing that this contention is present in the early church, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem want to know what Paul was teaching. All right, so Paul's eager. He's eager and willing to share his gospel with them that he's preaching among the Gentiles because he knows from whom he received it, right? And it's significant that Paul calls these men in verse four false brothers. That's a pretty severe title when you stop and think about it. These people are false. Now, I would submit to you that probably they didn't think of themselves as false brethren. Um, and it's significant that Paul says these men were brought in secretly and by stealth because false teachers never come into the church with name badges being like, hey, I'm so-and-so a false brother. They just, they just don't. They don't. And, and they didn't come in with a purpose statement and sit down with the pastor and the elders to say, hey, listen, we just want you guys to know right up front, we're here to spy out your liberty in Jesus and bring you back into bondage. I mean, nobody does that, right? They're, they're slippery they look like they belong. You can't quite tell if something's off. It may take a while to begin to see what's wrong. In fact, these false brothers might have had the best of intentions. 
We don't know. But the fact is they were dangerous men who had to be confronted for the sake of the early church, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of you and me. I mean, think about that. God has a job to use his people that he's appointed in leadership in the church to keep the gospel pure. Because if, if, if we lose the pure gospel, what about the next generation, right? He, he has to keep it pure. We, we've got to protect it. Verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, Paul says what they are makes no difference to me. God doesn't show any partiality. To those I say who seem influential, um, they added nothing to me. Um, and this goes right along with what I said earlier about the election of Paul to service and the parable of the wedding feast. And despite pleading to the contrary, um, the notion that God unconditionally elects individuals to salvation before the foundation of the world is favoritism. And uh, that, that whole idea, uh, Old Testament admonitions are aplenty to avoid being partial and that God is not partial and doesn't show favoritism. But I'll just give you a couple of New Testament admonitions to reinforce the, the idea God does not want us to show partiality or favoritism. First Timothy 5, 21, um, Paul writes and he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles that I'm giving you without bias. Do nothing in a spirit of partiality. We're not to show favoritism uh, to people. In James chapter two, there's a couple of verses here in James two where James says, brothers and sisters, don't show favoritism if you possess faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges of one another with evil motives in your hearts? And he goes on in verse eight and nine to say, but if you fulfill the royal law as expressed in this scripture, you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show prejudice or favoritism, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as a violator of the law, right? So God doesn't want us to show partiality. He doesn't want us to show favoritism because that's not something that he does. That's not something that he does. So we're not dealing with unconditional election unto salvation, but we are dealing with a conditioned salvation. Whosoever will may come by faith alone. And that's the gospel that Paul preached. That's an important piece of the gospel that Paul was preaching. So back to Paul's testimony. Uh, and we'll, we'll finish up here seven all the way down to 10. Paul says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter was entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also in me through mine, uh, for, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, which is the very thing I was eager to do. So the leaders of the Jerusalem church, James, the brother of Jesus, well, half-brother, same mom, different dad. Um, James, Peter, Cephas, uh, same, same person, and John, accept Paul. They accept him in his ministry to the Gentiles. They recognize God's hand on Paul's ministry, knowing that Paul did not require the Gentiles to come under the law of Moses, right? Um, and so Paul's testimony is a key part of that meeting. That's what we're getting here. So the value of a personal testimony is not restricted to people who had a dramatic conversion experience like Paul. I want to just tell you that. I, I, I fell into this trap even recently. Um, 
We, we can see the glory of God at work just as much in those who think they have a boring testimony. I think I have a boring testimony. And our, and our, our newest missionaries in Pakistan that we're, we're uh, building a relationship with, they asked me to share my testimony a couple of weeks ago in a crusade via Skype. And I told them in this meeting we were having beforehand, I said, I just think my testimony is pretty boring and bland and American vanilla. And I'm not sure it's going to be very impactful for people in Pakistan. And they said, well, what's your testimony? And so I shared it with them. And they said, that's going to really impact people. And I was like, I'm just going to trust you. Because I just don't think, it's pretty vanilla. You know, I just don't think it's that that big a deal. And, uh, and Primula and Daniel both just said, no, just share your testimony. And, uh, and so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stop right now. I'm just going to share my testimony with you guys. Because the objective truth of the gospel changes your objective reality. And we call that our testimony. And everybody here who's been touched by Jesus and the grace of God has a testimony. And that is a powerful weapon in your arsenal. So my testimony is I grew up in America. <laughs> Always been in church in the Bible Belt from the time I was born. And there have been very few times over the last 45 years of my life that I have not been in church on Sunday morning. Uh, The culture and the family I grew up in was very religious, very religious. And in in my time growing up in the Bible Belt, you didn't just go to church on Sunday, every Sunday, but Sunday night service and Wednesday night service. If there was another special prayer meeting on Thursday night, it went to that too, right? In church like three or four times a week. And my parents were brand new Christians when I came into the world, but they didn't follow Jesus with their whole hearts until later in life. And and in America, it's common for someone to comfort themselves about Jesus because they know some truths about Jesus. And uh, Jesus warns us about that in Matthew chapter seven. He says, there are gonna be many on that day when we see him who say, Lord, Lord, did some really cool things in the church. It was awesome. And he's gonna be like, "I I don't know you. I don't know who you are. Praise be to God, my parents know Jesus now and follow him with their whole hearts, but I was a product of that culture. And if you had asked me in my school years as a high schooler, if I was a Christian, I'd have told you yes. I would not have hesitated to say, yes, I'm a Christian. And then I would have gone on to explain to you that I was a much better person than all the other students I went to school with because I didn't smoke or drink or sleep around or do all the things the other guys I played ball with did. I wasn't like those people. I was a Christian, right? And that was my testimony then. I played sports. I played American football. I was on the swim team, played tennis in college, and I uh, was a good student, got high grades, was a, uh, had a full scholarship to go to college to sing uh, on, on voice, vocal performance degree. And, and I was uh, the lead in, in musicals in high school and in college, and I looked around at all the other people in my life, and I comfort, comforted myself because I thought I was better than they were. I was more talented, or I was better at this, or I always find the one thing I was better at because I had to be better than everybody else. And my morality was relative, it was relative to the people around me. It wasn't, I wasn't looking at the objective standard of God's morality. I was looking at everybody else. And I thought I was more pleasing to God because of my good behavior. So I graduated high school, full scholarship to study music. My ego was puffed up. I was full of myself. And I made myself comfortable by thinking I had a relationship with Jesus. And with my mouth, I said, I'm a follower of God. But with my life, I was saying something really different. My life was not testifying to the reality of Jesus. I didn't really care about God or his ways. I didn't really care about having a relationship with Jesus. I didn't love him, and I didn't really understand the good news of the gospel, even though I'd heard it my whole life. I was trusting in myself and my talents and abilities to be pleasing to God. So finally, I started my last year of university. 
I was engaged to be married to my girlfriend at the time, had big plans for a career in music, hoping it was going to lead to fame and success, and then something strange began to happen to me. Uh, My life began to fall apart piece by piece, and I thought it was happenstance, but it turns out it was God (laughs) destroying my idols. My fiance and I broke off our engagement, stopped our relationship, I got really depressed and began to drink and party and dance clubs to distract myself from the pain of all of that. My friends at the university who really did know Jesus in the music department began to really speak very directly to me, saying some hard things to me about the way that I've been living. And they loved me enough to tell me the truth about my hypocrisy. They loved me. And they, and, and they, they lovingly confronted me about the sin in my life. And at first, it made me really angry made me really upset. And I thought, who are they to tell me this? I'm a good person. I know God. But every day the pain was growing inside of me. And I didn't, I knew deep down, I was beginning to understand that I didn't truly know Jesus. I wasn't truly saved. And so over the course of about six months, God just destroyed all the idols in my life. And and let me just tell you, like when I say idols, like I've never bowed down to a statue of gold or silver or wood, never. But um, in my heart, I have bowed down to money and fame and popularity. I bowed down to idols. And I was worshiping at the altar of women and sex and popularity and I was pouring out my life for those idols that I worshiped. But they were tearing my life apart from the inside. And so God was just so gracious to show me my sin and he held up his law like a mirror to me. And I looked into the mirror, the perfect reflection of God's holiness and righteousness and saw just how ugly and sinful and wicked my heart was. And I, and I saw my failure to be good enough for God and I began to understand for the first time my need for Jesus. So I came to that place, confessed my sin to the Lord, cried out for him to forgive me a sinner, and he did, and he began to change my heart. He began to change my life. I found myself longing for church. I found myself longing to be under the preaching of God's word like I never had before. And the Bible had only ever been confusing to me when I tried to read it. I just was like, I can't understand this book. And then suddenly it was beginning to make sense, and I began to be hungry for the things of God. And I began to pursue him, and his word is my first priority, and some amazing things began to happen in my life life over the course of the next year because many of the things I had been chasing in my flesh, God took away and then he added them back to me after he had become the first priority above all things. That I could be trusted to steward some things that I really wanted, but before they had been idols to me. And so I grew in my understanding and my passion for Jesus. And I, and I noticed that among my new group of friends at church, there was a pretty young lady uh, that is now my wife. And, and so God began to add some things back to me. But the point of all this is that God has to be first place. He doesn't play second violin in the orchestra. He's actually the conductor and the composer. And so he, he doesn't take second fiddle, right? And what a privilege to be a part of God creating this masterpiece as he weaves our lives together. I, I don't have the burden of being the star. I, I get to be, uh, I get to stand off stage and just play my part. You know, I don't have to be the center. He's the sun that I orbit around. And I, I hope that many of you this morning hear my testimony. You're making personal connections in your own heart. You're going, yeah. Either I can see how God has done that in my life too. I can see where he shifted my whole reality to be centered on him and around him and and not me because that's the heart of the gospel, right? Because religion can't save you, only Jesus can. 
And so forsake religion and embrace Jesus. My story is just one of many stories, guys that work all over the world, even this very hour, this morning. You know, if you just stop and think about it, and all the churches where the gospel is being preached and around the world and other countries, right now, people are coming to know Jesus. What a privilege to be part of what God's doing in the world. What's the story of God's working in you? I would just love to, even this week, uh, hear your testimony, if time allows. How would you articulate your testimony? It's a powerful weapon in your arsenal. Remember, your testimony of the grace of Jesus at work in your life is one of objective truth, changing your objective reality. And it's a powerful weapon, so hone it and use it often. I'll probably cry on this one, this story. I've realized now, like when I put a sermon together, I'm like, yeah, that's a point when I'll probably break down. So I'm just going to start warning you before it happens. Um, Jim Cimbala, maybe you know the story of Jim, the, the Fresh Fire. Um, he's the uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle. Um, tells amazing story. It was Sunday at his church many years ago in the book Fresh Faith. Uh, it says, during the choir anthem, Pastor Jim was touched by the words of this young man. He was singing a solo in this particular song. And, the, and he was so prompted by the Spirit of God in that moment, he, he just suddenly changed the whole order of service that morning. He stepped up at the end of the song and he asked the guy who had been singing the solo to share his testimony because he knew that this guy had been a crack addict. And he'd gotten off a crack. He had come to know Jesus. He'd been delivered from that life. And he was living for the Lord. And he said, man, I just, I just think you're supposed to share your testimony right now. And, um, and as that young man shared his testimony in that service, uh, Pastor Jim just said, we're going to stop right now, uh, even though we're, we're, we're early in the service. And I'm just, I'm just, if there's anybody here who needs to respond to Jesus right now, just the altar is open, you know. And, and people began to just flood the altar. Just to, you heard the testimony of this young man who had been a crack addict and were coming down to give their lives to Christ. Later on that week, uh, the church got a call from a, a man in Texas who was asking for the music from that song from Sunday and he told him his story. He says, my wife and my family and I were visiting New York for the weekend. We have a 19-year-old son totally hardened to the things of the Lord. Totally hard. And we brought him up as a Christian but he's drifted away in the opposite direction and we're so concerned about him. But on this trip we invited him to enjoy the city with us but our real plan on Sunday was to bring him to your church so he'd hear you preach the word of God and then uh, the whole service got flipped around and and we were worried uh, and we found out that morning that we weren't going to be able to stay for the whole thing anyway but the way it all worked out was just so perfect because in the service out of nowhere you walked up on the stage and started to share the gospel suddenly this dad from Texas says my son was standing and with the others, he was headed right for the altar. And he just broke down before the Lord. And he cried out for forgiveness. And when he came back to the seat, he was a different person. He was a different person. It's so crazy how God will just change that whole meeting, that whole church service, just for the sake of one 19-year-old boy who needed to hear the gospel. I love that. I love that. My question to you is, what is the Lord prompting in your heart today? What's he prompting in you? Who, who in your circle, in your oikos, we talk about that sometimes, that not just your biological family, but the people who, who consistently come in and out of your life, your week, who needs to hear your testimony? Man, what's the Lord prompting in your heart? 
I love this. Uh, I love this. This saying. This quote is was discovered on the Washington Monument. There's graffiti in the 1800s, apparently, but it was much more sophisticated than our graffiti. And when they were renovating the Washington Monument, they discovered this. And it's a quote that says this: "Whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of one soul." erects a monument to his own memory more lofty than enduring than this, meaning the Washington Monument. Whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of even one soul erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this. That's some deep graffiti, folks. We could use more graffiti like that, I think, on our overpasses. But, but, man, how I long to be an instrument under God's toolage to be used in the conversion of even one soul. What an honor. What a blessing. And I pray for that. Not just for me, I'm praying that for you this week. That you would be used of God. And maybe in the conversion of one soul. Maybe just in the proclamation of the gospel. And you never know in this life how that worked out. And you're able to share it with somebody or a small group or, or whatever the context is. And, and, and maybe you never hear how it impacted people. But in eternity, as we're standing around the throne with Jesus. And, you, and, you be, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, that day when you share shared your testimony, that was the beginning of Jesus' work in my life. You just don't know. You just don't know. So I long for, pray for each one of you that you would share your testimony. You would be brave with the gospel. You would hone your testimony of Jesus and his work in your life and you'd be ready in season and out of season. You'd be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you because the pure gospel changes us from the rebellious sinners that we once were into the children of God who, who are justified, who are being sanctified, who will be glorified in his presence. That objective truth of that pure gospel changes our objective reality. We call that our testimony, and I pray that you take the opportunity this week to share yours.